All right, so we are doing a brief two-part series last week and this week um, on the book of Ecclesiastes, kind of a flyover and just hitting some key themes in this book. So last week we considered, there's this key term in Hebrew, it's hebel or hebel. Um, sorry, sometimes this, this B, the bet um, in Hebrew, some people say with a V, some with a B. So that's why last week you're probably like, wait a second, isn't it Hebel? You're saying Hebel. Okay. Sorry. It's so Hebel. It's like both. The V and the B together. Okay. There you go. So that's a little explanation. Okay. So last week it was Hebel and death. This week it's Hebel and life. Okay. So a little review for those of you who weren't here last week. Um, and for the rest of you who work, as we all need some reminder and repetition, right? So, <clears throat> had a picture of a sandcastle on the screen last week, and Sophia bravely came up and helped us understand um, this whole thing with sandcastles. Everybody knows they're going to get washed away, right? But we still build them. We spend lots of time building them, and we actually enjoy building them. I mean, this royal waste of time, right? So, are they really worth making? Yes, of course. Well, guess what? A sandcastle is kind of like a picture of our lives. They are really vaporous and brief, okay? But that doesn't mean they're not fun to build or worth making. So Ecclesiastes, you, you may be somewhat familiar with the book or very familiar, and maybe you think it's all just kind of nihilism and pessimism and, you know, everything is meaningless. In fact, the NIV translates Hevel as meaningless, meaningless. Okay? So certainly this book speaks of the futility of things under the sun. Absolutely. But this book is actually trying to sober you and make you happier. Helping you face the fact that the sandcastle of your life is going to get wiped out really, really soon and encourage you to build away. Get out the bucket and the shovels. So Ecclesiastes is here to blow up our false hopes and make us happier with our hopes in the right place. So again, Ecclesiastes 1.1, if you're not there, you can turn to Ecclesiastes um, and look at verse 1 again. Tyler read it a few minutes ago. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does this word vanity mean? Hevel. Hevel, hevelim. It means that life is fleeting. It's vaporous. It's like the steam rising from your coffee cup. You can't grab it and store it away. So wisdom, Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. Wisdom says don't plant your life or your identity in anything that is so transient or fragile. If you do, you're going to be building your life on sand. Sand that's just quickly pouring through your fingers, like sand through an hourglass, okay? So, so Hevel is translated vanity, and sometimes it's used in the book to speak of the futility of life 
It expresses vexation and frustration, life under the sun. But this is not the cynical sneer of a nihilist, okay? Somebody that just thinks everything is meaningless, you know, some philosophy majors, right? So there's a guy named Peter Kroll who said this. I quoted this last week. Hevel is not really about nihilism, cynicism, or purposelessness. It's about the tedium, transience, impermanence, and dissatisfaction God built into the universe. So last week we considered Hevel and death, vanity of vanities and death. We will only really learn to live by facing death, not running from it, you know, see no death, hear no death, you know, turn up the volume. We don't want to consider our mortality. No, we need to look at square in the face. When we accept the reality of our death, that's what frees us to actually live. So the preacher then keys in on two words that are going to help us when we consider vanity and life, how to live. In light of the fact that our life is a vapor and we're going to die, how shall we then live? It's actually easy to miss these two key words, okay? But once you've had them point, pointed out, you'll see how intentional the writer is to contrast the two, okay? So point number two, gain or gift, if you're using the outline in the bulletin, or you'll see um, the points on the slides as well. So David Gibson, um, I've recommended this book already a couple times. It's called Living Life Backward, and it's kind of a commentary on Ecclesiastes, but kind of a very devotional commentary. You would enjoy reading it. Highly recommend it. I'm going to quote from him a few times this morning. So he wrote this, Far from being something that makes life in the present completely pointless, future death is a light God shines on the present to change it. Death can radically enable us to enjoy life. By relativizing all that we do in our days under the sun, death can change us from people who want to control life for gain, keyword, into people who find deep joy in receiving life as a gift. This is the main message of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. Here the preacher begins to unpack that message by showing how he pursued gain in the world and what he realized at the end of his quest. When all was said and done, he was left staring at the cold, hard fact of life's brutal emptiness. And yet his conclusion is ultimately positive and profound. The gift of God does not make this meaninglessness go away. The gift of God makes this vanity, fleeting vapor, enjoyable. So this book has to do with your, my, our fundamental posture toward life under the sun. What is life? What's it for? What are you seeking? And so the preacher lays out there's two options as far as how you approach life under the sun. One, you can kind of slavishly pursue gain. Or two, you can humbly receive life as a gift. So first, pursuing it as gain. The way that the preacher unpacks this is he calls it chasing after the wind. Okay? So, again, look at Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 to 11. And just listen for this chasing after the wind. What happens when you pursue the world as your source of gain? 
Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around the wind goes, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So there's all these lessons in creation for how we can't pursue our ultimate gain in this world. Nothing ultimately satisfies. Whatever has been will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So the preacher, he acquired great wisdom. As we read on, he went after pleasure. He denied himself nothing. He made great works like gardens and vineyards and you know, parks and houses. He had all these possessions and on and on. And then here's his conclusion. Look down at chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had made and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So if you actually try to gain your life in the sense that he uses it here, you will lose it. You'll waste it. So if you and I, if we try to fill the gaping hole, like hungry for happiness, if we try to stuff that hole with pleasure or the pursuit of wisdom and degrees or work and success or whatever, it will never satisfy. Nothing under the sun is big enough. Nothing under the sun lasts long enough to satisfy us. So materialism is like chasing the wind. Happiness without God is just like sand through the fingers. If you try to build your happiness house on the sand of this world's stuff or accolades or whatever, it's just going to slip through your fingers and crumble. Actually, Caroline said it well in her baptism testimony. She said, The world shifts and will soon all fade away. And when that time comes, I want my identity to be rooted in what remains. So we've got to listen to the preacher. He's wise. He actually had the opportunity and obtained his every desire. Work didn't do it. Wisdom didn't do it. Pleasure didn't do it. Laughter didn't do it. Wine didn't do it. Building projects didn't do it. Possessions, music, romantic interests, money, none of it did it for him. None of it satisfied him. So just one quick little thing here. I think one of the reasons why the lie holds for us that satisfaction's around the next corner or if only is because we can't obtain it then we can live under the illusion that just a little bit more, or if only, will work. But how many people have had it all 
and been horribly depressed. <laughs> well, this guy had it all, so like we should really listen rather than continue to buy the lie. But well, 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 just if only, you know, around the next turn. So, totally futile search if you're trying to find gain, ultimate gain in this world. But that doesn't mean that he turned into like this, you know, snobbish, coffee-drinking bohemian, you know, with this pessimistic, cynical, philosophical, kind of nihilistic streak, you know, poking holes in everybody's happiness bubbles, you know. No, he's just trying to make sure that we don't pursue ultimate gain in anything under the sun. Because you're just not going to find it. You will be disappointed and disillusioned. But if you stop trying to squeeze gain out of the things under the sun and you start to enjoy the good gifts of God as gifts, then we begin to actually enjoy these things under the sun. So again, Gibson writes this, at the end of the preacher's epic quest through life for happiness, he discovers where it comes from, not from his striving, but from God's giving. So Caroline shared her story. If you're in Christ, if you know Christ and are following him, what was it for you? Do you remember this? Do you remember what you used to try to squeeze for ultimate meaning? Is it a relationship or some kind of level of success or perfect body? There's all kinds of stuff. We just keep looking around the next corner, you know? High schoolers can't wait till college. College students can't wait till their next break or to graduate. Singles can't wait to get married. Young couples can't wait to have kids. Couples with young kids can't wait till their kids get out of diapers. No more pack and plays. Oh, I can't wait till I don't have to buckle them into the car anymore. And then the parents wish that they could go back to college. You know, single people wishing they were married, married people wishing they were single, short people wishing they were taller, taller people wishing they were shorter. Big people wishing they were smaller, small people wishing they were bigger, smart people wishing they were more athletic, athletic people wishing they were smarter, sick people wishing they were well, poor people wishing they were rich, rich people wishing things were less complicated, working people wishing they were retired, retired people wishing they were still working. It's not around the next corner. If you are going for gain, squeezing gain out of this world, you're never going to find it. It's vanity. But that doesn't mean we just throw up our hands and say, meaningless, you know, and we just need to wait it out. So David Gibson, I think this may be the quote that was up. So the picture is beginning to look like this. Neither the world nor your own life is completely within your control. If you spend your whole life refusing to accept that the day of your death is approaching, if you live and work 24-7 thinking that by doing so you can get ahead of the game and have a better life by making money or that you can understand the world by getting the right degrees or reading the right books or if you think you can really leave a lasting mark on the world through what you do, then you are spending your life trying to punch above your weight. We are creatures, 
not the creator. And the preacher is out to shatter our illusion that we can be like God. We want to have it all, know it all, and be remembered by all for all time. No, says the preacher. Life is gift, not gain. So sometimes when our little bubbles get burst, you know, we're trying to seek happiness in the wrong places. When our bubbles get burst and we get maybe faced with how vaporous this life is under the sun, especially when we taste the dissatisfaction and the emptiness that comes from trying to squeeze life and satisfaction under these, out of these things, instead of learning this lesson that the preacher is trying to give us, sometimes we want to just escape the lesson. We want to run. So we try to numb ourselves to the pain or the ache or the emptiness. And in our day and age, folks, there is no shortage of diversions and distractions, right? Our phones offer endless diversions and distractions. Netflix, TV, movies, games, alcohol, drugs, sleep, retail therapy. Like laughter can be a diversion. Busyness, we can hide inside our busyness. All kinds of avoidance and escapism. We pretend, we avoid, we deny. It is so healthy to think about our death and how vaporous this life is rather than, you know, turn up the volume and avoid it and ignore it. So some people try to escape, and what the preacher is saying is, no, escape, escapism. Flee from that fleeing. I mean, some people, obviously, death is, death is inevitable. They just try to grab all the fun they can, they can get before they expire. You know? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul quoted that in 1 Corinthians 15. But we need to escape our escapism. And the pre preacher wants to help us. This book wants to help us. God wants to help us. But how? How do we do this? So does he prescribe a month-long retreat at a monastery? Like if you really want to get serious about how to live life under the sun, you need to set aside a, a month and make sure you fast half the time. Here's this intense spiritual discipline regimen. Could be a place for those things. That's not what he says. He does offer wisdom. He does force us to face reality. He does encourage us to embrace the limits of life under the sun. He does command us to fear God and keep his commandments. He also counsels us to trust in God in and through the vexation and futility and frustration in this life under the sun, knowing that one day God is going to set it all to rights. But one of his primary exhortations is go enjoy your life. Go enjoy the gifts God has given you. He actually says, let us eat and drink, not because tomorrow we die. <laughs> Let us eat and drink because it's God's gift to you. I, I did not see how strong this theme is until this time studying through Ecclesiastes. I think I lean too much in the direction of meaningless. Okay, so I want to prove this to you. I want you to see 
how frequent this, it's like a refrain in this book. So chapter 2, verse 22, and you'll see the contrast here between gain and gift. Ecclesiastes 2.22, what has a man from all the toil, what does he gain? All the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So then he says, and this is not with sarcasm, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat? And apart from God, who can have enjoyment? Do you see? Gift, gift, gift. Receive the gift. Flip ahead to Ecclesiastes 5.16. He says, This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? That really puts it in stark relief. Naked we came into the world. Naked we go out. We, we take nothing with us. There's no gain, you see? So stop trying to pursue this life, to pursue gain in this life. You can't take anything with you. Verse 17, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. The one who pursues gain so religiously. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. He's not sneering here. Like, you know, what I've seen is, you know, just to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil in the few days of your pathetic life. Like, he doesn't say that. He really means for us to enjoy the gifts of God. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, even that comes from God, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So enjoyment is not something that we achieve or attain. It's something that we are given as a gift from God that we should receive. You can have everything, but apart from God, you can't have enjoyment of it, at least not for long. So again, listen to David Gibson here. He says, some say eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is. The preacher says, eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is. God has given the good things of this world to us, and they are their own reward. When we accept in a deep way that we're going to die, that reality can stop us, that reality can stop us expecting too much from all the good things we pursue. We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. Death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time. Each and every day of our lives, instead of using these gifts as means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take the time to live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. So 
Hevel and death actually teaches us how to live. Again, I said it's a refrain. Look at chapter 3. Three twelve. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Flip ahead to 8.15. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. You can see it again in Ecclesiastes 9, 7 to 9. We'll skip that one. Flip to near the end of the book, eleven seven. He writes, Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let them remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. This life is a vapor. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Enjoy your youth because it's not going to last. It's going to go so quickly. So this is not the same as eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know, let's just, if Christ isn't raised, if there's no hope of the resurrection, then we should just grab as much, you know, satisfaction as possible. No. This is eat and drink for that is the gift of God. So the former is like, materialism and this hopeless outlook, like just grab as much as we can before we are worm food. But the latter is this humble faith and happy wisdom, like, thank you, God, for these gifts. This life is a vapor, but you give so many good gifts to enjoy en route. So, one more time, Gibson, I think. I think it's one more time. <laughs> Those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. But those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we will do after we die. The gifts are from the real country. They smell and taste and feel like home. What's the image in Isaiah 25 of the new creation, when Jesus comes back and everything is set to rights, it's, a, it's the wedding feast of the Lamb. God is going to put out the best spread you've ever seen, and we're going to rejoice and celebrate and feast with God. So again, receive the gift. Life is gift, not gain. Gift to receive, not gain to acquire and achieve. So we need to receive it humbly as a gift. We can eat the food that we've been given with thankful hearts. Not just scarf it down to get to the next thing. We can enjoy it with other people, live as humans, creatures in community, not as to-do machines. This is true in the everyday, you know, of mundane breakfasts and lunch and dinners. 
But this is also true and most fully true, supremely true, in the greatest gift that God has given. Okay? All of life is a gift, but our greatest need and the greatest gift given is the gift of God's Son because our need for salvation, soul food, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never ever hunger. Whoever believes in me will never ever thirst. So you can try to gain the whole world, but you're going to lose. But if you lose, just deny yourself the fact that these things will satisfy your souls. No, they won't. Jesus gave his life so that he could give us life now and forever. True life, satisfying life. If you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, you will find it and be satisfied. So Caroline read from Ephesians 2. This is our story, all of us. If you're a Christian this morning, by grace, it's a gift. You've been saved through faith. Life is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Everything is of grace. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Everything is a gift. Even the good things that we do is a result of his grace given to us. All of life is a gift. So we should live all of life giving thanks to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 5.20. So there's a little story that I read. Um, how many of you know who John Stott was? Okay, so he was um, kind of an evangelical statesman, you know, uh, lived to be 90. He was single and celibate his whole life. Um, God used him in a powerful way. He's written over 50 books. Um, the Cross of Christ, Basic Christianity are kind of classics. So anyway, in his biography by Timothy Smith, here's what one of his study assistants said of him. Um, this is a very small thing, but you'll see, you'll see how it illustrates the point. Every afternoon at 4.30, I bring John a cup of coffee. As soon as I set the cup on his desk, he almost always says, somewhat playfully, I'm not worthy with a British accent, usually without moving his bowed head from his papers. One afternoon, I felt that it was particularly silly for him to equate worthiness with a cup of coffee. When he said, I'm not worthy, I responded, sure you are. After a few moments, he said, you haven't got your theology of grace right. I said back, it's only a cup of coffee, Uncle John. As I went into his kitchen and began putting things away, I heard him mutter, still with his head bowed to his papers, it's just the thin end edge of the... W <laughs> Great, I just blew it. It's just the thin end of the wedge. In other words, if you don't see the gift of even the smallest things, you're not going to see the gift of the greater things. So let's cultivate the reception, the humble reception. We're these little teeny tiny creatures of a moment vaporous vanity. That's our life. Everything is a gift. Let's humbly receive it. Let's stop striving and reaching like, oh, we're going to acquire. Like, I, maybe you, that's not exactly what you're doing, but the seeds of that can sometimes drive us. And we think that satisfaction and, and security and 
you know, then I'll be something and not be a bum and not if I can just get around the corner. No, vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. So if we receive and give thanks, we will be content and satisfied in God and his good gifts and we'll be freed not only to give thanks, but to give. If you are on the, if, if you're kind of disposed to gain, typically what you do is you hoard and acquire. <laughs> so again, we receive freely, we can freely give. What if God wanted to use Ecclesiastes in the life of Bethel to make us just a little happier, a little less cranky, a little less anxiously toiling, you know, and a little more willing to joyfully share the good gifts that God's given us. Like, do you think if that started to take root in us, we're going to be brighter light, saltier salt? So, the preacher is commanding us to obey the refrain. Enjoy these good gifts from God. He knows that ultimate satisfaction is not available in this life. He knows that things oftentimes don't go well. The righteous suffer, the wicked prosper. So he tells you, okay, wait, wait till the lasting fullness comes. Wait till the day when God sets everything right. He, he doesn't skip over that, not at all. But he certainly encourages us to be postured and disposed toward life humbly as creatures of a day to receive his good gifts rather than trying to strive and reach and grab and claw to squeeze life and satisfaction out of things that will never do it. So I read this little story I think we have, yeah, time for it here. Um, it's called The Beauty of a Little Life. And this author was writing about his grandmother, and he attended her funeral. I think this is a helpful little illustration of perspective here that the book of Ecclesiastes is giving us. The Beauty of a Little Life. On Tuesday, I was at the funeral for my grandmother, Wilma V. James. Wilma lived most of her 95 years in an industrial town named Owensboro, Kentucky. She raised three boys and worked at General Electric for decades. She outlived my grandfather by almost 22 years. You won't likely read anything about her anywhere but in her obituary. Hers was a little, beautiful life. Do we value little lives? Do we see them as beautiful? Perhaps not. It's easy to find someone preaching, follow your dreams, to aim for the stars, to become somebody. So much of modern life seems to be about escaping through whatever means available. Smallness. We want to escape smallness. This seems tragic to me. There's beauty in that smallness. Perhaps we misjudge the value of little lives also because we don't evaluate correctly. We don't know how to quantify feeding a family that turned around and fed another family and another and another we don't know how to quantify, I'm sorry, we know how to quantify being an influencer on social media with a million followers, but we don't know how to value parenting future parents of parents. In other words, we only see concentrated value, not generational value. 
This is the definition of failing to think in terms of eternity. I wonder sometimes if it's always been this way. Older generations seem to have more or less accepted the borders of their lives. Moderns have grown up on technology that promised a way of escape from the givenness of things. We're upwardly mobile and connected. We can ditch town anytime and become celebrities without leaving our living room. We don't have to be here. We can be anywhere. A little life is thus all the more loathsome to us because it is all the more avoidable. The problem comes when I try to reconcile my grandmother's life with my obsession to escape a small life. How much blessing did she infuse into my life through merely her presence? How much was I shaped by the meals, the open doors, the simple how are you doing calls? She was not anywhere. She was here. She was here in a small, obscure life for my dad. He was here for me. Where would I have ended up if it had not been this way? Suddenly I wonder if the problem is that I want to be on the receiving end of a little life rather than the giving end. Let me dine on the fruits of obscure love and kindness while I use everything in my power to become famous or significant. I pray that as I contemplate my grandmother's glorious little life, my heart will begin to release its craving for stature and instead look with love at the people and places my Creator has put in front of me. To see a little life as beautiful instead of a punishment is an act of love. Love for others and love for Jesus who makes the least to be greatest in his kingdom. Obscurity is not failure, and simplicity is not tragic when they reflect the worth of the world to come. So, you see how that grandmother knew her limits, And she lived this life receiving the gifts of God. And there were other people, even generations, that were blessed as a result of that seemingly small provincial posture. So, enjoy, (laughs) but also the preacher warns us that not only is death quick to come, but it also means judgment. And we will be judged for everything done under the sun. So the end of the matter, you can flip all the way to the end of the book. Verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So he's saying, don't waste your vapor. Enjoy your vapor. But don't waste your vapor. It's God's vapor to give you, so don't reject his borders, his limits, when you do pursue the enjoyment of those good gifts that he gives. In fact, don't forget, one of the commands, actually he repeats it many times, one of the commands that he gives that you're supposed to obey is to eat, drink, and be merry. Right? So, I love these couple quotes. We'll close with this by G.K. Chesterton. 
Um, the first one's by him, and then another one, C.S. Lewis, and the screw tape letters. So Chesterton said this, The more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, God's commands, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. That's what the guardrails are for, or the fences, let's say, so that you can enjoy the meadow. And then in the screw tape letter, C.S. Lewis, you know, um, it's a senior devil writing to a, a junior devil about how they are going to tempt this man and try to ruin his faith. So the devil is writing about God, his enemy, and here's what he says. He's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and crosses, they're only a facade. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without him minding in the least. So let's receive God's gifts and live grateful and joyful and waiting for the quickly approaching day when all the futility, all the pain is going to be swallowed up in the fullness of joy forever. So we're going to sing a closing song and then have a few minutes of community discussion before we're dismissed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good and you love to do good for us. You made everything good, good, very good. So many gifts given. So many joys and pleasures and blessings that we don't even see. We just assume. We blow right by them. We don't enjoy them. We can just be like to-do machines. And I pray that you would help us to not strive, strive, chasing the wind to gain and to try to squeeze joy and satisfaction out of things that can ultimately satisfy. But let us, Lord, come to you as the giver of every good gift and humbly receive them. First and foremost, the Lord Jesus, our Savior, the bread of life, the living water, the light of the world, our good shepherd, our older brother, our everything. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior, may we count everything that the world runs after for gain as loss. And for us to live would be Christ and to die would be gain. Lord, please help us to live this little vapor with our eyes wide open, not sticking our fingers in our ears to your truth, to your commands, to our quickly approaching death, 
but help us to live in reality facing our death without fear in Christ and then walking with Christ and with each other, enjoying your gifts and sharing them joyfully with those around us, with our neighbors. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.